Get excited, Ontario. DraftKings Sportsbook is live. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports from footy to hockey and so much more. Bet special parlays, spreads, money lines, and more. Plus, do it now from anywhere in the province. So go to the App Store now and download the Sportsbook app that is offering 2-1 to odds on a hockey team to score a goal every day in May to get in on all the action. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 19+, plus, physically present in Ontario. Eligibility restrictions apply. See sportsbook.draftkings.com for details. Gambling problem? Call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Please play responsibly. listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Knapp. Yes, it's episode 70 of the Northern Football Podcast. I'm Peter Galindo with Mis Quicos, Thomas Neff, and Alexander Gongay-Rusik. And fellas, I hope you've done your warm-ups because I have a feeling this is going to be our longest episode yet. But how are you guys? Yeah, without a doubt, the longest episode we'll ever do, that's for sure. Doing great. Happy to uh, join my fellow Quico here, Alex. I won soccer. And of course, Iran. What a roller coaster that is. We've got the squad, Canadian Championship, um, MLS as well, as we gear up for the FIFA window. Uh, if it is indeed a two match window or three match window, uh, should be excited. We reached uh, 200 ratings on Spotify. So thank you to the listeners. But we still haven't reached 1,500 uh, followers on Twitter and 150 uh, reviews on. Apple, so please uh, check us out there. Yeah, we're chilling over here, West Coast. You know how it is. Got a nice couple treks into Victoria. Got to see some some local live and upcoming football. It's been good here. We got the, the Canada's coming to town. Iran isn't, as we'll, we'll we'll dive into. Curacao is coming to town, and who knows the heck else is going to come to town? You hear <laughs> anything from CPL All Stars to to Belize to. Ecuador someone's coming to town we'll find out soon uh soon enough so it's going to be a fun week of Canadian national team soccer in Vancouver one way or another for some of the wrong reasons and for some of the right reasons yes and whatever happens I'll be there to cover it alongside you Alex so that should be exciting either way just a reminder to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss any episodes. If you prefer Apple or Spotify, then do what Thomas suggested there off the top and drop us a rating and a review on Apple when you have the time. Hope you're enjoying the uh, nice hot summer for those of you in Toronto. Let's begin the show with the news that broke on Thursday morning. And that is, as you already know, Canada's friendly against Iran on June 5th has been cancelled. In a statement from Canada Soccer, the Federation said, quote, the unattainable geopolitical situation of hosting Iran became significantly divisive, and in response, the match was cancelled. While we consider the external factors in selecting the optimal opponent in our original decision-making process, we will strive to do better moving forward. Canada Soccer will be conducting a thorough review of our process for hosting of international matches to ensure no stone is left unturned in our pursuit of excellence both on and off the pitch, including consultation with all stake. Holders. 
We've since learned that the Iranian Federation is seeking $10 million in damage. FIFA might not be pleased ahead of the June 16th announcement of the 2026 World Cup host cities either. You guys had 24 questions just on the subject alone. So as always, we'll go through the ramifications by answering uh, your tweets. The first one is from Jordan SC. How desperate was Canada to schedule friendly with Iran despite the obvious backlash it would have created? Before we dive into everything, I just want to say that we greatly appreciate that all of you guys see us as a forum to discuss these matters. We don't take that lightly. So as such, we try to present all sides and then form our opinions based off the information we have in front of us. Typically speaking, though, that is on sporting matters. This is obviously a much more touchy subject, but we will do our best to dissect it all. Now, as for Jordan's question, I'd say Canada was somewhat desperate because they couldn't get another friendly sorted apart from the Iran game. Iran wasn't the first choice, as we all know. I still think you could have made it work with Nigeria especially when you have a relationship established from the women's friendlies in Vancouver as well. You could have gotten your foot in the door as well with, say, Uruguay or one of the Comebol teams out of the World Cup like Colombia or Chile before they finalize plans to go to Europe. But even still, you could have scheduled two friendlies on, say, June the 2nd and June the 5th. Then if you still make the initial error with Iran, at least you have another friendly to fall back on and you're not left scrambling at the last minute. But here's the thing with the quote-unquote obvious backlash statement. Maybe I was naive to this and maybe you guys saw more of this, but having been off of Twitter for most of the week that the friendly was reported then announced, I didn't see a lot of backlash from the Canadian soccer community nor from a lot of people outside of it. And Jordan asked another question that might help me answer the rest here. And he did ask, do you think people should have done a better job earlier to call out Canada soccer earlier so they don't have egg on their face? And to that, I say yes, because until Justin Trudeau spoke, there wasn't really any major uproar. Once it was known Iran was going to make $400,000 from the friendly, that there might be ties to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the opposition in Parliament started to bring this up, and the players themselves were worried about playing the game with this backdrop, it just snowballed. As an aside, I do want to say this. Just because players are photographed or seen to be associated with these political figures or these terrorists, it doesn't mean that they outright support them. A lot of the time, they have no choice. These are powerful figures. Look at Putin in Russia and all the multiple Russian athletes who maybe don't agree with what he does, but have to publicly support him because otherwise their families could be in jeopardy. I even go back to the example of Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile. Um, Carlos Caschelli, a former player for the national team, said that his mother was detained and tortured because Caschelli was an outspoken supporter of Allende, who was Pinochet's uh, uh, predecessor. So it was a way of keeping him in line and not being too outspoken. But back to whether someone should have done something sooner. Yes, someone within Canada soccer should have addressed this like, hey guys, there aren't any diplomatic relations between the two countries. Maybe we should think through the ramifications here. Say what you want about the government's response and the fact that they've allowed Iranian athletes and musicians into the country to perform and play since the plane was shot down in 2020, but you should have been prepared for this scenario. 
Politicians can be hypocrites, believe me. But if you're a national sporting body and you get government funding and rely on the government to approve visas, then you're at their mercy. And I think this was a good lesson for for Canada that maybe a few years ago when, you know, you're a lower ranked, you know, men's national team, you wouldn't deal with such consequences because if you're 150th ranked in the world and you have Iran come here, I don't think anyone would have batted an eye. I mean, that's just the the reality of being a bigger team, a team that has weight in, in the sporting community in Canada, a team that has responsibility uh, to, to, to stakeholders, a responsibility to fans, et cetera. You know, they're, what they're going to do is going to be seen under a microscope. And I think there you're, you're going to have to take foresight when you're taking decisions. So while they, you know, it made a lot of sense for them on a sporting sense, uh, side to, to schedule this friendly with Iran, you, you have to consider all the, the angles. And I think with that, with Canada, that's kind of been a, a bit of a theme with them in the past few years. And it's certainly part of the, the fact, like we mentioned, uh, you know, many times the size of the, the staff, you know, the, 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 the ever-growing popularity of Canada and maybe not having the budget to reflect that. You don't necessarily have enough people to do the sort of background checks and the cross checks and, and, and whatnot. And it really becomes obvious in a situation like this, but it shows that you really have to be diligent in your decision making because this is too many times now where it's simple. It can be as it's been as simple as something like merch, re- releasing merchandise and planning the website. And when the website's just not ready or, or not able to handle the demand and it just you know, folds. And there's just been a lot of decisions like that where Canada necessarily hasn't had the, the foresight to, to, to anticipate. And I think this was a good lesson, as we saw in the statement, to, to really finally put the, the sort of checks and balances to ensure that this is the case. Because, yeah, like Peter mentioned, one thing, I mean, we're all, I guess, you know, in the sense, <clears throat> guilty of it in the sense that we didn't see it coming is that when I thought the saw the friendly, I didn't, you know, necessarily think of, of the implications of it until after yeah, I think it, you know it shows that you know it, there, there's gonna have to be you're gonna have to consider all of that let's let's speak to the facts here the facts here uh, is that um, Iran murdered uh, Canadian citizens that cannot be underestimated by any means yeah uh, second of all Canada soccer uh, is new to the international friendly uh, matchmaking business well to this level uh, to this level correct. yes to this yeah. level yes I'm not talking about minnows uh, let's also discuss uh, this. If Canada thought that Iran was a good opponent, they should have gone ahead with it. For me, it's if you dive head first, you have to follow through. You have to follow through. And I received a lot of criticism for what I said, but I still stand by what I said. The CSA crumbled under pressure. They eventually came in to you know what uh, Trudeau said, what was spoken in Parliament. In the end here, um, there's a lot of consequences. We'll get into those a little bit later. But nonetheless, it is a loss by any means. I do not see this as, as all from the sportive side of things. And I know that politics uh, makes with sports because it's just, which is, that's just the, the day and age that we live in. But from a sporting side of sense, there is not one thing about this that helps Canada, uh, in my opinion, to get uh, prepared for the World Cup. And to continue with the other 23 questions that we received from you guys. Again, thank you for sending those in. We really do appreciate it. We do. Um, Michael Jeffs, who is ultimately responsible for choosing Iran, and should that person be fired? Is it a tone deaf by Canada Soccer to even consider Iran as an opponent? Uh, please put your reporter pants and find out who this decision maker uh, is and hold them accountable. Uh, Mike Lafarbe asked, we were the darlings of FIFA not too long ago. 
Now we've taken many, many steps back. Could Bontis' job be in jeopardy? And Bernard Campagna, did Bontis resign yet? Well, I have tried to reach out to many, many, many people within Canada soccer since this news was announced, and it's radio silence for the most part. And to a degree, I can understand why, but if you're trying to bury your heads under the sand, it's not helping matters at all because then you're kind of showing people that you're a little guilty, which I mean, they did acknowledge that they made a mistake in the statement, which is fair enough, but then it becomes hard from a fan perspective, from a media perspective to, to really cover these things. Right. And in terms of who was responsible, it really does depend on the Federation. What we can say is that Nick Bontis came onto the show and said he was in contact with multiple federations about friendlies in June and September. Typically, the process involves sending out an invite, deciding on a venue, agreement on revenue sharing. Then you put together a contract and sign it, and then the game goes forward as planned. So the presidents are involved, along with certain sections of the, of the federations, like sporting directors, coaches, financial officers, etc. Since Canada Soccer is a smaller organization, we can't say for certain and given the gravity of the situation, I feel like it would be very unfair to say anything with absolute certainty, but we can assume just with the lack of resources in the Federation that the board had a pretty large say on the negotiations. I can't imagine that the sporting side, i.e. John Herdman, wasn't notified of the proceedings throughout the process, especially with Iran being in the USA's group and the relationship with Herdman and US coach Greg Berhalter. Should the person or people responsible be fired? Too early to say, but if this causes irreparable damage to the Federation, and it looks like it it just might, then I think the board would be justified to do something that drastic. Although if it was board members who spearheaded this thing, do they remove themselves? That That is the question. In fact, I know for a fact that uh, Herman has such power that he actually has the final say on, on who Canada faces. As expected for, you know, I'd say at the end of the day, when it comes to World Cup preparation, as much as Canada wanted a good opponent for revenue reasons to pack the stadium as they would have in the, in the case of an Iran, at the end of the day, John Herdman wanted to play a good team to prepare his team for the, the World Cup. That remains his goal and priority. And I think, yeah, like Peter mentions, a bit of a smaller organization, say. So I think there is probably a pretty direct line between Herdman and then the board and, you know, Nick Montes uh, at the top. So I feel like the decision-making was pretty linear. What I imagine is Herdman was just purely on the sporting side of running opponents by him, what he would think. And I'm sure he greenlit that in the sense of that's an opponent he'd want to play. And I'm pretty sure I like to think given the power he, you know, he has on, uh, you know, in Canada soccer uh, association for, and for good reason that he'd, you know, green light and red light opponents that he'd play. So then from there it was up to, to, a Canada soccer to, to, to figure that sort of, you know, ramifications in the business side and then all of that out, which is pretty standard practice for, for at the national team level. So can I just add that um, it doesn't fall well on both sides. Uh, one Canada soccer being the Federation. When you put out a press release like that and no one at the Federation is able to speak, like put their name out there and just give a press release that everyone at the Federation is saying this, I don't think that shows a face because a lot of the time 
federations, when they're crushed under pressure, I mean, Peter, you know this in South America, uh-huh. uh, the president doesn't come out and speak. They do the exact same thing Canada Soccer just did, just put out a standard press release and then have the uh, medios de comunicación, the, the media outlets, just right. take those exact words and, and put them in. But that, that's the one thing. The other side of this is the players. The only one we have really heard from is Jonathan Osorio. What about the other 24 players? And I'm not talking about the youngsters. I'm talking about the, the veterans, the leaders. What about you guys? If you guys weren't happy, why didn't you tweet about it? Today's In today's world, uh, you can you have power. You don't need uh, – I, I, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but they don't even need us. With social media, players are becoming less and less – to get at least their word out there. To get their word out that they're, they're becoming less dependent on the media, that they could have literally made a statement if it was bothering them that much. To that end – we are at some point as media going to speak to John Herdman. If he's the only one who speaks about everything that happens, that is a dirtbag move from Canada soccer because sure he might've had some say in terms of what happened, but this goes much further beyond him. If someone, and this is where a general secretary could help. And I mean, we're going to talk about what, when that timeline is, is going to be finalized in terms of the hiring of one. If Peter Montopoli was still in charge, you know, he could have addressed this, even if it was just to come out and trot company lines, doesn't matter. You shouldn't have your coach take the fall for something this major, or at the very least be the front facing public figure for the media to speak to about it. And that is exactly it's to continue a lengthy list of questions. Uh, are we on five? What was Canada Soccer's primary factor to make the decision on canceling the Iran friendly? Like maybe the government refusing to give out visas to the players, etc. I had heard from the Iranian side as recently as the Tuesday or Wednesday before the cancellation was made official that the visas were in limbo with the Canadian government. I know the Federation stated that the external pressures led to the decision to cancel, which I suppose is true, but if the federal government was going to reject the Iranian visas anyways, they wouldn't have been able to play. So I I feel like maybe it was sort of intertwined in that the pressure led to the visas getting canceled and then therefore they had to cancel the game. Do you guys remember when Canada played against Haiti? God, this feels like such an age. When they played in Chicago, Mm -hmm. remember when Haiti came out and said they were extremely disappointed with Canada's choice to play in the U.S.? Because right. certain other players didn't have visas to get into the U.S. Because at that time, Canada couldn't play at home. Exactly. Right? I think mm-hmm. that if the government wasn't going to give visas anyways, Canada Soccer should have consulted, hey, are you going to put these visas if we, you know, make this work? And that's just the whole thing. I mean, it wouldn't have played out well. Now, Haiti, much smaller nation. Canada saw Canada's national team back then. You know, no one was paying attention to it mm-hmm. uh, like there was now. For me, I, I, have, um, I have kind of a, a bitter taste in my mouth because... There's a lot of supporters of this national team, rightfully so. They've, they've jumped on this bad bandwagon. Many of them are politicians. But I am frustrated that, you know, the, the people are, are criticizing something that is out of control, first, first and foremost, and, and second of all, and then go out and then take pictures like politicians do, take pictures, Trudeau taking pictures with players. I mean, it, it's either you're on one way or another. Like, but the, for but, me, but man, those are politicians, Thomas. Politicians flip-flop all the time. Right. And this is why they are such controversial figures and why so many people don't trust them. Right. Because this is what they do. Well, on that note, Dan Clark, will FIFA sanction the CSA? Orion, also, do you think uh, we will need to pay the Iran FA compensation for cancellation 
or we won't need to. And then continuing the list of questions. There's a lot. Uh, Mike at Sports Fanatic A. We're canceling friendlies like the one versus Iran. Are there financial penalties imposed by FIFA? And will this have a negative impact on organizing future friendlies with other nations? Uh, Jordan SC, will this 15 million one fall go straight to Iran conference for compensation? And finally, full-time FC, do you guys think the CSA realizes the fines that they were going to face Iran after canceling? With the friendly, we would have made lots of money, but now we might have more than we have ever uh, made. Uh, Peter, you actually put out a tweet listing the of ramifications, negatives, mm-hmm. to put it lightly, uh, of the cancellation uh, of this. And it's not just financial. No, and we're going to get into all of it throughout this entire section. Don't you guys worry. We're leaving no stone unturned here because I know you guys want answers. To answer each question individually as best as I can, on Dan's question, I don't believe FIFA does anything in terms of financial penalties. It's the Federation of Iran who is entitled to some sort of compensation since a contract was signed, then broken. To Aryan, see my previous answer. What Mike asked... I don't think it'll have a totally negative impact in terms of future-friendly organization because the Canadian team on the sporting side is still attractive for a lot of other countries. What will hurt Canada soccer is the ability to potentially host friendlies in the future, I think, until they build a consistent track record of being able to competently do so. As for Jordan's question, it is $10 million according to the Iranian media, And while I don't think they'll get that much, whatever they end up getting in the end, because I think they have every right to be able to sue Canada soccer here, that's going to be a significant chunk of the FIFA windfall either way. And that's perhaps the most damaging ramifications of the ones that that I listed, as Thomas alluded to there, on Thursday. The plans to beef up your federation with more full-time employees, more youth camps and camps in general, chartered flights, improving grassroots Uh, playing, coaching, refereeing, all that could be drastically altered after this. And finally, to full-time FC, yes, they had to realize that this was a possibility because they signed the contract. And I can tell you for a fact that the CSA was adamant about not canceling the match as recently as maybe the start of last week, entering the weekend, because of the financial penalties and FIFA's potential response regarding 2026 and all that, which will eventually transition us nicely to the next topic in a moment. Yeah. Well, I think with the, in this case, it's going to really depend on the contract because in a contract like this, so obviously uh, you'd like to think uh, to, two organizations of this level would be able to put in the sort of foolproofs to, to regulate against any such cancellation, be it political, be it an environmental disaster, et cetera, that sort of stuff is written into to the contract. So I do, I, you know, in terms of that, again, into FIFA, not much is going to happen there in terms of money for them. It's a friendly game. If it's a competition, that's a whole different story. But if it's a friendly game, theoretically, at the end of the day, the two teams do what they want. So it's going to come down to, to Canada versus Iran. And we're going to have to find out what's in the contract, what were the terms and from there, also the reason for cancellation, because, you know, like Peter mentioned, if, if, if Iran, the reason why they couldn't, you know, play is because of this visa situation, then, okay, maybe they'll have a, mid, a little more right to, to, to sue either Canada or, you know, the CSA or the, the Canadian government for, for, you know, issuing a promise that you could play a game when you physically weren't even able to get visas in the first place, because this isn't like a competitive game, like the Haiti game, where you have to play the game some form or another. This is a, a friendly match. Mm-hmm. 
So in that case, depending on what the reason, the actual proper reason for cancellation and what the uh, contract was written out, it's going to come down to Canada versus Iran at the end of the day for, for all of this. And I mean, that's going to, it could either make a dent, it could either not. I, I mean, I do find the $10 million figure thrown about really ridiculous because at the end of the day, I mean, Iran will still be able to play other games. I mean, yes, they lost a chance to play Canada in front of a, a relatively pro-Iran crowd, uh, but as a friendly, uh, you know, I don't think 10 million is going to be the sort of number that happens in the end. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I'm certainly at minimum, I'm sure that 400,000 figure we, we threw, we saw around for appearance fee and then some sort of estimate of gate re- potential gate revenue would be worked in. But other than that, I'd be really surprised if there's anything wild, but I suppose I could be proven wrong. Well, if there's anything you learn from negotiations is you start high, then you go low. This is it. Uh, but look, I mean, Iran are already playing a friendly against Uruguay in Montevideo. And um, and I do have a bit of sympathy for the players of Iran because um, in the end, I mean, they were supposed to play against Albania. They're supposed to maybe potentially play against Ecuador uh, and, you know, New Zealand. So at the end of the day, these players still need competition to, you know, get ready for the World Cup themselves. Now, ten million dollars is ridiculous. I mean, what they're asking for is is bonkers. But that's absurd. There high. is there is certainly some composition that will, will be done, probably around that number that, that Alex uh, has mentioned. Um, but I think what really lingers here is the fact that there is such small time here um, to really reschedule a friendly. Um, you know, for like we literally only have five six days here, uh, but nonetheless. Canada now has some sort of power. I have heard, you know, that many other nations have inquired. Now, the way it begins, the way I, I have heard it begins is as soon as the Iran game was canceled, their first um, their first try was to see what countries were available and then go work the list down from there, as we'll see, um, you know, soon. But this question, I think, has to be maybe a bit, not out of context, but I think it does, doesn't help the timing. Jordan ask, will Canada be forced to give up their bid for 2020 ticks by FIFA? Uh, he also asked, uh, how is the inability to sell out the lower bowl for BC Place affect their inability to host 2026? He's probably talking about the Curacao match. Yes, exactly. Um, I'll get to that in a bit. No, I, I doubt that it'll be as extreme as having to surrender the bid, but what could happen is those sweeteners that were potentially offered by FIFA to Vancouver could now be off the table. For example, if they offered them a quarterfinal or something of the sort, that may no longer be an option because they can't be trusted to run this event without any government interference. As ironic as this is, guys, FIFA hates political interference. So if they fear that the federal or provincial government can get involved like they have here, they may not trust Vancouver or Toronto to run things smoothly. I think that it's a tough sell in in, in, in terms of kind of, you know, wrestling away games, but they just might not get as nice games, if, if you want to call it that way. In terms of the Curacao match and the ticket sales for that, it's very difficult to get people out to a 7.30 kickoff on a Thursday night against Curacao, but... I've praised Vancouver for getting 16 to 17,000 for French Guyana. So it does go both ways, but I doubt this is what changes things. The bid needs Vancouver. It's a world-class city and it'll draw off sellouts for any world cup game it gets. Whether it gets those sweeteners though, remains to be seen. 
Yeah, I think with, with this, there's no chance it affects the proper bit itself. I think FIFA held a World Cup, is holding a World Cup in Qatar. They held a World <laughs> Cup in Russia. In terms of morals and, and that sort of stuff, that's it, completely off the table. And we can we, we don't even have to go in whatever the heck is going on in the USA these sorts of days. So if they're going to, you know, the U.S. is it's, it's just yes. The U.S.-Canada bid may, might not look as attractive as it did a couple of years ago anyway. So I don't think that's an issue. It's, yeah, like Peter mentioned, it just might kind of affect the relationship with the CSA or whatnot in terms of... Uh, just the you know the the sorts of ramifications of, of of such a thing and then one thing that is worth noting is that a lot of the work has been mostly done by cities and i think the fact that vancouver has been able to claw back in is a huge benefit to them and it shows that fifa and and them have been able to work out a good relationship so maybe that plays in the favor but there'll certainly be not i don't think ramifications in the sense that i feel like that's pretty much decided like this vancouver visit was more just like a Okay, unless you guys mess it up catastrophically, which to be fair is still possible considering what has gone on recently. If they mess it up catastrophically, yeah, they're not in. I'd like to think that the cities are pretty much written in stone because they want to plan, they want to do branding, they want to do all the the big announcement and hoopla around that. And I mean, some of the reporting you've seen seems to indicate that. So I think for the most part, it won't affect the fact that Canada will host or co-host the World Cup. It just might be, yeah, like Peter mentioned, sweeteners or you know, relationships or trust or other stuff. And it, it could have further effects down the road. It might, you know, Canada might be hard off to, to host a standalone World Cup, for example, or other events, knowing uh, that such a thing could be possible. I know it's not on the list of questions here, but I think it's important enough to talk about it. Again, I mean, the question you asked, you just asked, Peter, how do you get many fans out to a Thursday 7.30 p.m. kickoff against Curacao? I'm very curious that Canada Soccer hasn't marketed this match as a World Cup send-off. Um, yeah, that's and, a good point. And that's, that's very interesting because usually you kind of get those kind of like, oh, okay, last, last match at home soil, you know, we got to play World Cup for some 36 years. We haven't seen that. And, and, and that is why we have uh, a, li- a question from our listener, um, Arion. Uh, what's our plan for September now? We might have to pay the majority of our FIFA money to Iran. Uh, will, would we still be able to go to Europe and hold a camp there? Uh, and ideally, uh, and jo- Joseph Porco asked, ideally, which country would you like to see Canada face in September international window? Well, the, the FIFA money doesn't arrive until after the World Cup, basically. So Canada okay. soccer would have allocated resources to that European trip. Plus, they get a cut of the revenue from friendlies there, the tickets, all that stuff. I don't think that changes anything, thankfully. But the plans to host a game in Canada, and they've had a big country lined up for September, guys might be affected after this debacle for the countries that I'd want to see them face. It it honestly doesn't matter to me as long as it helps market Canadian soccer and, and gives them some sort of payday here. Um, It could be England, Germany, whoever stylistically, any decent European team will give Canada a game and give them preparation for Croatia and Belgium in terms of absorbing pressure and just overall game management. I mean, I think Still, you'll be able to 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 cobble together something for for friendly. Maybe um, you know, at the end of the day, it might <laughs> limit Canada's plans to host, which weren't really like didn't sound likely anyways. Because you know, when you're hosting, you have to pay for the the venue and pay an appearance fee and et cetera. And while there still are some costs to play, even if you're the visiting team or if you go to Europe and play a team in the neutral, 
in a neutral ground. I don't think financially this will have too much impact on, on that. I don't think. And what it might mean is that you, again, like he might not see a, a Canada versus Argentina in a, you know, a France, for example, just to throw a completely hypothetical, don't even know if that's a possible idea, but maybe it just might means if you're Canada, you might have to, to bite the bullet and go play a Serbia in Serbia, for example, or go play, you know, a, a Germany in Germany, just to, to absorb as many, save as many costs as, as you can in that regard, depending on how fine this is, how big this fine is. Cause like we mentioned, the fine could at the end of the day end up being relatively limited and it ends up being, they make some of it back on this supposed rearranged friendly in the first place. So uh, it, it feels too early to see what the financial implications will be down the road until we get a proper figure. Canada will be much better off losing two nothing to Serbia in Belgrade than beating some African nation three nothing. 110%. I guarantee you. The thing is, you have to test yourself against the very best. And if that means going out to a hostile environment like is Serbia, then so be it. And that's why this match that was going to play against Iran was going to help them because it was going to play against a hostile crowd. And I would be shocked. I mean, as much as Canadians, you know, have money because obviously we're a, we're a top 10 country in terms of GDP and whatnot, and they can afford to travel and, and, and you have a lot of Canadians that will probably be making their trip to Qatar and can afford it, most importantly. I would be shocked if for any of those three World Cup matches, maybe for Morocco, you might see a maybe 50-50 crowd. But I'm telling you, those three matches, you will see majority uh, Belgium, uh, Morocco, yes. and yes. Uh, Croatia. Like, yes. I, I guarantee you, because these are countries that have been making the World Cups for the past five years, five, five editions, uh, even more so. So what does that mean? Is that fans of those countries... Every four years, they're saving up in advance. (laughs) I can tell you this. I can tell you this because I have friends that have gone to like the last four or five World Cups of countries. What about the last two? What about the last two for Chile, Thomas? Chile, vamos al mundial. But but here's the thing. Uh, Jordan SC is asking, uh, was Canada better off just playing games in Toronto so they would have had more options? Um, Look. The reason why that match was even scheduled for Vancouver, Bonta said it on her show, uh, was the larger venue. Yes. Uh, now, that now does it look like Toronto would have been the better choice? One hundred percent, especially because they got to travel to uh, San Petersburg after. But okay, so lot to unpack here with this one. I can say for certain, unequivocally, that Vancouver wasn't a deterrent. The deterrent was finance related in terms of paying opponents a bigger cut than the CSA could afford. In terms of travel. Could it have helped? Maybe, yeah, but if you're setting up shop in Vancouver for a week, then flying down to San Pedro Sula, it's much easier to stomach. It's not like qualifying where you have three game windows with multiple trips in between, which is why going to Vancouver during the Ocho was just essentially impossible. Yeah, I think for Vancouver, it was a must anyways. You needed games in Vancouver for the FIFA reasons, just for given the the qualifiers and how it was all, you know, in in Toronto, etc., I think it may be, you know, in Toronto, could it have opened some more doors? You know, yes, of course, teams are going to want to play on grass and it's closer to Europe, et cetera. Not that matters with playing European teams, given the whole Nations League anyways. So I don't think, it, you know, maybe in Vancouver, maybe it, like Peter mentioned, the financial one's a big and interesting one. Maybe playing in Vancouver made it so that teams were more expensive. Be like, OK, if we're going to play on the turf, we're going to demand a bigger appearance fee maybe like something like that, but other than the most part, they needed to, yeah, yeah, our tickets as well. So I think for the most part, they need to play this game in Vancouver uh, full stop. So 
well, I'm sure there would have been a benefit to Toronto. I just don't think it was going to happen. This is all a business, uh, the cost and then obviously the profit or what would have been profit in this case, which is uh, not going to happen, unfortunately. The thing is this, that when you play these kind of opponents in bigger venues, there's always, you know, the chance, you know, to uh, make good money and then prioritize and plan ahead for months and even a year in advance. I mean, Bonta said on our show that the 2022 uh, budget was actually made in April of 2021. Mm-hmm. So now that with 15 million, the 2023 and, and so forth, full-time FC, what, do, what are you guys thoughts about Luca Coliosho with the cancellation? Will he play in the nation's league games? Absolutely crazy weekend in Canadian soccer, but love the work all you guys do up the NFP. I think we might have to make that uh, the new slogan of the show. Just get a t-shirt up yeah. the NFP. The sign off is, and remember up the NFP and then that's it. Uh, similar ask from uh, Dito. Uh, how much does the friendly cancellation hurt Canavan's chances with Luca Coliosho? Uh, will he lean more towards the U.S. men's national team now? Will it be similar uh, to January uh, with how Canada were no longer to give Marcel Flores and Stefan Mitrovic a Canada camp? Uh, Zachary Rip, as posted before, just some clarification on Coliosho and the fact that he won't be able to see the field. And if he did, would it be required a one-time switch, etc.? I think this one is is, is pretty um, self-explanatory. Maybe not the, the last part, but but nonetheless, this is a new name. We talked about, it's, it's funny because we talked about this last week. Uh, some of us were in favor. I think we, I think all of us were in favor uh, here that um, a call up to this national team might've been too soon, uh, but Herman, I nonetheless. Not. I did not. I actually said, you know what? Really Why want? not? Give him a call up. I, I think go Ellis, back and, I and listen to the tape. I swear. I did. I, mean, say I said from the sporting side, it was too early. I think oh, Alex the, and the I were, were on one side and you said, why not? Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, this is why Herdman's the coach and he's decided to give this guy a call up, a, na- a name that we'll have to get uh, used to. I think I've learned how to pronounce it, but how to spell it too. According to several reports with Coley Osho in the squad um, with not a friendly, it looks like right now he hasn't committed to Canada and it will be just a, a training appearance. Yeah. Which is disappointing for him. Um, and the plan wasn't to have him in Nations League games, but to have him train, then get minutes in the Iran friendly. He can still train, of course, but it would have been awesome for him to get a game for obvious reasons. Uh, he can theoretically play in the Nations League matches, but yes, he would have to file a one-time switch, having represented the U.S. at youth level, according to FIFA regulations. But being in the environment, training with the guys, seeing them every day, speaking to Herman and the staff, being ingratiated by them, will be a positive in terms of potentially convincing Colio show to choose Canada in the end, because feeling the camaraderie, enjoying being in that room and clearly getting along with the coach and buying into the culture is what's most important overall. But there is still an element of the Mitrovic Flores situations here in that he had an opportunity to play in the game. And for now it's been taken away from him, which is a shame from his perspective. Well, Canada apparently should, uh, Stop calling in dual nationals because that's uh, every time they do, they just cancel <laughs> games, but uh, or at least young dual nationals. Yes. But uh, jokes aside, I mean, with Coley Osho, I think this still opens the door. He's in camp. Actually, he, he is in Vancouver for the start of camp. So it's obviously not deterred him uh, from coming, which is great news to, to see 
that, that he made it over. I, I my what I at least interpreted from this call up anyways was that it was always going to be to taste the environment, get a friendly yeah. if you can. And I do wonder if you know part of dual national. It feels weird, wrong to say negotiating because it's, it's so much more than that. It's given everything involved in making such a decision, but dual national decision making, you have to coax guys, you have to give them a taste. And I do wonder if you're Canada, let's not, you know, kid yourself. You want Luca Coliosho to be in the U20 squad. He's on the long list. I'm sure you'd love to have a guy who's, who's on the cusp of a La Liga squad in the, you know, in, in the U20s, and we spoke about it last week, and actually I wrote about it this week. So you do wonder, maybe part of the discussions that John Herdman and Mauro Biello and whoever else had with Luca Coliosho was, hey, we'd love to have you represent Canada's U20s down in Honduras. We feel like you could be a key player in the attack. We'll give you a taste of the Canada camp. Come get a taste, see what it's like, train with Davies, train with Jonathan David, and then go to the U20s. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see if that ends up happening in the squad. But, you know, part of the dual national dances is offering, you know, you don't, you don't want to offer the farm to one guy because when the next guy comes around, you're going to have to offer That's two it. farms. But yep. it's not a bad negotiating ploy to be able to say like, hey, we like you or you're promising, come get a taste of Canada's camp and then please represent our U20s and we'll go from there. So I do wonder if uh, it was also as much that sort of posturing, that sort of negotiating that went on here. That's what I mentioned last week as well in terms of why not call him up because you bring him in for a week see how he feels in the camp. And then from there, he can fly down to Honduras and represent whoever he wants to represent at the under 20s, whether that's the US or Canada. So it was a win-win situation. And now we might actually be seeing that play out here. It's definitely potentially uh, a, a big maybe. And the reason why uh, he's not taking part in the Nations League matches is not only because he's not committed, guys. The other reason is he's also starting with Espinel's first team preseason early on which is obviously, I mean, it's going to be his first full professional season. So he doesn't really want to, you know, tamper with that. That is why I think the U20s might be a stretch, you know, kind of start with the Espinola first, uh, first team preseason and then kind of leave halfway through. But nonetheless, I see no negatives at all. I do want to say something, though. I think we should tread carefully with Kolyosho because he is still 17. Now, Kolyosho makes his La Liga debut. Everyone's talking about Kolyosho right now. But it is going to be a couple of years, potentially, maybe. We never know. Maybe more. Nobody here has a, has a crystal ball. Even if Kolyosha Osher does get, you know, this training stint and then he kind of slowly breaks through or kind of does like what the Smith has done in, uh, in Nice, make a couple of bench appearances, you know, maybe other players like come off the bench. Nonetheless, it is still good experience for him. But the U.S. now, the U.S. now is now on warning because Berhalter and, and Herman talk. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there must be some sort of internal competition that has now been risen. Just uh-huh. by the- we got him first. Just <laughs> yeah, especially after Iowa Canola. Herdman yeah. must have loved that one. Just uh, dancing around like, hat. he scored 50 goals for your youth team. Like he's ours now. <laughs> just just takes Akinola. a photo of him, takes a selfie of him he's with Akinola. like with Bay, sends it over to Greg Bearhalter, you know. Akinola remains to be seen. But yes, it may be a small win. Uh, now, we still have a couple more questions here. Uh, Mike Lafarbe, if a new friendly against any national team can't be found, is a game against a Canfield All-Star team actually possible? Uh, AGR, uh, you, you wrote about this, or, or, or the editorial team uh, decided theirs. Uh, Edward Hohenstein Wong, uh, do you see any benefit to calling up a couple more players to form a B squad and have a red versus white game, ideally one fans get to watch? 
Um, we rarely see any any sort of um, intra-squad matches that are live streamed. I, I can't remember the last time I saw one. In fact, I can't even remember the last time that we ever saw a national team play an unofficial friendly against even, um, let's say, even a club. Oh, I mean, I'm just saying, last year, I'm pretty sure El Salvador played like DC United or something, uh, or some, some sort of thing like that. It happens, it happens. like, mostly out of FIFA windows, you see those yeah. sorts of weird yeah. friendlies, but like, it's not possible, uh, not impossible for what it's worth. I, I heard it through the grapevine that the CPL All-Star team is ridiculous and jokey as it might have sounded at first. They're considering the possibilities. And why not from the CPL's perspective? You get to market some of your league's best players up in, in, a, in BC Place against the Canadian men's national team, Davies, David, etc. It would make a lot of sense for them. Obviously, they have games this weekend that would involve postponing, etc. like that. It wouldn't be easy. Or you risk having players miss out on those games, which is either way, it's a tough pill to swallow for fans in market. But for what it's worth, I don't blame them for looking at it from the CPL's perspective. Obviously, Canada, all options on the table. So it's not as outrageous as it first thought, is all I'll say on that. But it, it, otherwise, it's just going to be seeing whoever you can get. Like with Canada, beggars can't be choosers. If you can get a country up, great. If you can find someone like a Bolivia, you know, one of those teams, great. If not, you do what you can. And if it's going to the Vancouver Whitecaps next door and convincing them to play a friendly, you know, that you, you do what you can, you can, you can get for, 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 uh, for Canada. So as absurd as any proposal is right now that I don't think there is a, a ridiculous uh, proposal for Canada because they need that game in some form or another, they're going to plan a game. It sounds like unless, you know, something goes catastrophically wrong reports are, what I'm hearing, what everyone, you know, all the Northern football guys are hearing is that there's a plan to have a game. It's just, it sounds like there's, I've heard many things on the, the, the opponent and they're just trying to get anyone, which is fair. They need anyone at this point. Have you guys watched the movie Argo? Yes. When the special agent comes in the office and the, the old fuck is sitting there and he asks him, he asks him, is this the best plan that you really have? They make a Hollywood film right. yeah. and then they go to Iran. Yeah. My goodness, this is very ironic. <laughs> anyway, I, I didn't even plan this analogy, but but anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is, and then he asked him a question: Is this the worst, the best worst idea you have? And he says, "Yes, sir. This is the best worst idea we have." Well, I can tell you right now that Canada is talking to Bolivia, a major country's U23 team, and Guinea-Bissau. Yes, Guinea-Bissau ranked 115th in the world. Some of you that might say, okay, well, the first two sound great. The third one doesn't sound as great. Like Alex says right here, I mean, beggars can't be choosers. It, you literally get what you get. Yeah, man. Exactly. But I will say this, though. As for the, the question from Edward there about having an A versus B game, I don't think that's the best solution. There have been sparring partners from taxi squads under 20s, etc. in previous camps. And it's done for scrimmaging purposes in training to keep the guy sharp, all that stuff. It would be very watered down. And they do this on the regular anyways, even without this situation affecting things. Just to, you know, finally get to the last question. I've even heard from players' circles that some of them wouldn't even mind to get some extra time off because it's been a busy European yeah, season. Jonathan David even gave an interview saying that these the players need the rest and why not? But of course, people outside the behind the scenes are always working, you know, to get these friendlies in because obviously it is a business. 
Uh, final question from Arion. When is the CSA going to announce the position for general secretary? Um, I actually have information that they've already hired somebody. This is just this is just a thing of matter of time before that gets announced. Iran, the whole Iran thing has really put a whole dent on when they're going to announce it. But they already have somebody in place. Now, I did ask my source who it was. And uh, as you can probably guess, you know, the answer was, you know, not really given to me. But they, they have hired somebody, which is positive to see, but it did take a while. But to that, we move on to the other major thing that uh, happened last week. And if it wasn't for this Iran debacle, should have been the lead <laughs> of, of the show, but unfortunately isn't. And that is the Canada squad. Uh, that oh, was that announced right. Wednesday afternoon. Oh, that happened? We finally get to talk about football, guys. Only football. No, the uh, John Herman's 25-man squad includes a couple newcomers uh, and returnees, depending on how you view it. Goalkeepers, Milan Borion, Maxim Cropo, uh, and Dane Sinclair. Defenders, Richie Larea, Alistair Johnson, Donia Henry, Stephen Victoria, Kamal Miller, Scott Kennedy, Sam Adekube, and Raheem Edwards. Uh, that is obviously a new player returning to the fold. Uh, Stefan Ostakio, Otiba Hutchinson, Samuel Piet uh, making his return. Uh, Jonathan Osorio and Mark Anthony Kay. Uh, forwards, Junior Horley, Tishan Buchanan, Charles Address Brim, obviously making his uh, return to the squad. Luca Koliosha, as we already touched on, Kyle Aaron, Jonathan David, Lucas Cavallini, Ike Ugo, and Alfonso Davies. Now, the most noteworthy news is that Raheem Edwards received his first call-up since 2018. Samuel Piet returning after skipping March with his ankle injury. And obviously, Charles Nurse-Brim is rewarded for after a strong season with Holland uh, with a recall. Plus, 17-year-old Spaniel dual national winger Luca Colliosho is also included in the squad, as uh, previously mentioned. Before we discuss who is here, we got seven questions about Stefan Mitrovic hmm. and the fact he wasn't included in this squad despite Colliosho receiving a call-up. Ramsey, uh, why did Canada lose Mitrovic to Serbia's U21 team this window? Logistical problems, not the right time, or is this the beginning of the loss of another major dual national? Uh, same ask, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Mike Lafarve, uh, Thomas, I know you and I talked about this uh, all, but what the hell is going on with Mitrovic and Kanaman T? Looks like his dad should take a major step up from social media. Yes, he should. Uh, full-time FC. What has led to Canada not giving Mitrovic a call-up? This is a huge disappointment, as we know. He wants to play for Canada, but it is, sadly looks like his dad is standing in his way. Chris talks. Does Herman simply not rate Mitchell? Wheeler said Mitchell is lower than Nelson on the depth chart. Uh, Mitrovic is a key player in the top 15 league in Europe at age 19. Kone and Koliosho uh, making pro debuts and instantly get called up. Uh, he is performing just as well as Brent, but at a higher level. And finally, David Kiesman. Are we gushing over dual nationals who will never swear the shirt because they already played for other U19 or U21 teams? If Mitrovic said he would choose Canada over Serbia, like Flores or Slonina did, would that increase his chance of a call-up? Is it chicken before the egg, or does he need a call-up first? First of all, Thomas, take a breather. You deserved it. That was a lot. Everybody brace yourselves here, because this is going to... Probably be no clearer, but this is what I have been told here regarding the Mitrovic situation. Gareth Wheeler did explain the CSA side of things in a way on one soccer during halftime of the Canadian Championship last week. And there's nothing new to report there, really. Um, there was a preliminary invite 
But Mitrovic simply wasn't interested in coming to this camp. Mitrovic's side claims that there weren't any conversations between him, his camp, and the CSA after he was added to the extended list for this window. Overall, though, that is the main reason, is that Mitrovic just wasn't interested. Now we get into the secondary reasons, which is his place on the depth chart. Now this is from the Canada soccer side. I do stress this. They see him as far below most of the current options like Buchanan, Davies, Hoylett, Laren, David Ugbo, Miller, Corbinu, etc. Um, and I think it's noteworthy that they mention him among strikers there because they don't play with a 10. Mitrovic can, in a way, play as part of a duo. So they obviously see him as a winger and or as part of a strike partnership. But you can't just take that in isolation because Koliosho is a winger. And is he really above the majority of Canada's wing options right now? Probably not, right? The difference is Koliosho was willing to come into the camp for June. If Mitrovic was, I think he'd have been called up regardless of anything else that I just mentioned here. So the real question is, who's the onus on? Canada soccer or Mitrovic? Because one side says one thing, the other one says another. We know Mitrovic was interested in coming in January. He stated his desire to play for Canada if they came calling. Um, the club in the CSA, I'm talking about Radnitschke Niche, Mitrovic's club specifically, and the CSA agreed on about a week for him to come into the January camp and possibly play that Guatemala game. And then if everything goes well and Mitrovic was interested, he files his one-time switch and then represents them in qualifying. He wouldn't need to file the one-time switch to play in a friendly for Canada. Same with Kolyosho, which is why that was the plan for Kolyosho in, in, in June. So with that in mind, typically when there are two sides giving you two different stories, I tend to go for somewhere in the middle to get the proper truth. Maybe Mitrovic is still hesitant to come in, even if he's expressed his desire to play for Canada. But perhaps once Kolyosho entered the picture, the CSA cooled on Mitrovic and that could explain the whole, hey, the CSA never really spoke to us after the preliminary invite. Uh, it's all politic. Mitrovic wants to keep his options open, and I respect that immensely because it's a massive decision to make for a 19-year-old. But his father tweeting all these things, true or not, is gaslighting the whole situation and making it tough for Stefan Mitrovic. By the way, I do think when a dual national is coveted, as David touched on in his question, it definitely adds to the allure of that player because if Mitrovic didn't play for Serbia's youth teams and said, screw Serbia, I'm going to go with Canada, you'd be excited, sure, but there's less impetus to get him called up and less desperation to get him called up. So a, a very messy situation, one that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon because obviously Mitrovic did not accept a uh, Serbian call-up either. And I think as I've touched on on the show a few times, they've been tracking his progress since about November, December. Get excited, Ontario. DraftKings Sportsbook is live. Now you can legally bet on all your favorite sports from footy to hockey and so much more. Bet special parlays, spreads, money lines, and more. Plus, do it now from anywhere in the province. So go to the App Store now and download the Sportsbook app that is offering 2-1 to one odds on a hockey team to score a goal every day in May to get in on all the action. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. 19 plus, physically present in Ontario. Eligibility restrictions apply. See sportsbook.draftkings.com for details. 
Gambling problem? Call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Please play responsibly. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in uh, September and November because, uh, again, his, in terms of play, you take him in Canada. Like we mentioned, we all had him on our list of guys we'd like to see this camp, so it's not a question of with him of sporting performance. I imagine with John Herdman as well. I'd like to think that John Herdman has seen Mitrovic play and certainly knows what he's capable of. I have always, you know, noted that in terms of a fit, the fit is going to be very hard with Mitrovic because Canada's just really recently kind of moved away from using a 10, like rare occasions mm-hmm. they do. They put Jonathan Azorio there. It's rare though. And even then Azorio is asked to play on the wing. He's asked to play out up front, et cetera. So positionally, there always is that kind of mismatch there. But uh, in terms of the talent, there's no doubt about the the talent. But there's just so much ex- you know external factors with the the the, the countries, the father, uh, etc. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in in November because, and it, I imagine Mitrovic's eyes, he wants to go to the World Cup, of course. Who doesn't? But uh, will Canada be able to offer him a spot if he had, you know didn't accept call ups like this one? He'd have to be playing out of his skin for something like that to happen. Will Serbia offer him a spot? Who knows at this point? Uh, and because of that, it's it's really made for such a such a tough situation. A couple of things here. Um, I believe it was full time that said this that Cole Yosho and Kony got called up right after they make the debuts. Uh, yeah, they did because the MLS and La Liga are are much stronger than the Serbian league. Here's another thing though: when Mitrovic came on the podcast just before the holidays. After the January camp, that is when he was going to make a decision. With the camp being canceled, that changed everything. And then obviously a 19-year-old, you give him time and space. A lot of things happen uh, from that period of time. Plus, and this is not this is not to discredit Mitrovic at all, he didn't even know if he had to file a, t- a one-time switch. And I'm not saying that he didn't really look at – well, I will say it. I really don't think his internal circle really looked at this seriously. Not, not that they didn't look at it seriously, but if they were really like all in on Canada, then they, then their first initial, um, the first initial response would have been, okay, let's look at how to, you know, file this one-time switch. And well, that wasn't. He did say it. to us though, Thomas, though, that he was looking into it, like his camp was looking into it. So it's not like he. Right, but they never you know, went full ahead with it. They, they never really pulled the trigger. Well, no, because then the camp got canceled like a week or two out. So then at that point, it became moot. So, I mean, before they would have even had to have been faced with that dilemma, it was taken away from them. But it's, I mean, I, I see what, what, what you're saying. I'm just pointing out that in case people got confused, maybe they did look into it, but as seriously as they probably could have in, in terms of getting a definitive answer of, well, yeah, this is the situation. We have to do it or we don't have to do it. They did not. Then again, the FIFA regulations are ridiculously confusing. That is also two things. Mauro Bielo was the one that picked up the phone and called Mitrovic's camp. That is the equivalent of Kamala Harris calling the president of Spain as opposed to Joe Biden. It's the assistant calling. What does that mean? That Dude, that's means- like the, the minister of defense calling, not Kamala Harris. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is literally it. That is literally it. Just because, again, this is uh, just because we had, we had to start the episode with a political thing with Iran. That is literally the equivalence of We're leading into minister, politics today, guys. We're leading into politics. Calling uh, the president of another nation, which, in other words, means, eh, you know what? You're not really that important. I'll let my assistant deal with the other guys that are below the depth chart. That, with that being said, I do agree with what Peterson and I do agree with what Wheeler said uh, that he is further down the depth chart. 
And right now he's not good enough to play for Canada, but he may be when he moves, when he, when he makes that next uh, transfer. Uh, and that's why we received a question here. Uh, and that is uh, from Arion again, where is Mitrovic's next move and what league will suit him best? What is his main position? According to reports, it's looking like Belgium. Thomas, I know you dropped that there were legitimate concrete offers from Belgium in January, but they fell through because of financial reasons. There was literally a, um, an offer letter, as, yes. as I once told you, in private. Yes. Of course, I'm not going to publish that, but there was an official letter from Mechelen, and that was not concrete. Um, Reddy Ganesh just didn't even look at it. I know Club Rouge has been linked. Um, they seem to be pretty heavily involved in things. I, I wonder how that move works out for him sporting wise, because they have a lot of depth up front and they've switched to a three, five, two. So they don't even really play without out wingers anymore, unless they plan on using them as part of a front two, then I can't really see how it works. I know they sometimes do three, four, three, which maybe then he could fit in some way, but even still, they got some pretty established players in that team in terms of his main position. He did come on the show and say that he is a number 10 primarily, but with Radnitschke Nish this season, he's been playing a lot on the left wing. And so that would probably be his secondary position. And that's where he'd theoretically play for Canada as well whenever they use wingers. Um, so those would be his two primary positions, but not a lot of teams use 10s anymore. So I have a feeling he'll probably end up becoming more of a winger slash inside forward type as his career goes on here. Yeah, he kind of is more like a, like the, the the kind of player I think off the top of my head is like a Marco Busto style player where he's like that number 10 attributes, but playing maybe in the, the, right. the, the, the wide areas of a, of a, a, a narrow three, just to kind of, you know, in a team where fullbacks push forward kind of that. Yeah. Like you mentioned the number 10 role, you look at most number tens, they've been forced to adapt. I think of another example is what jo the role Jonathan Azorio played on TFC's run in 2019. It was when it was, Alejandro Pozuelo kind of running the show in the, at the number 10. And it was Jonathan Azorio kind of playing that inverted left midfielder uh, role. So I think with that, with Mitch Fitch, it's going to be interesting to see what he becomes. Because, I mean, could he even develop into something as a number eight? I doubt it because he has such good offensive skills that coaches would want to see him up the further up the pitch involved in the final third because uh, he has that, that in his locker. So uh, going to be an interesting fit, but yeah, number 10 in, you know, inverted midfielder kind of uh, is what I see from him. Although I suppose development could uh, see him add some new skills to his locker and maybe add a different position. And if, if, if what Peter is saying uh, comes to fruition, that is that we will have John Harmon on the show, that will be my friends. I guarantee you the best episode. We're going to have to do two or three parts. That is how many questions we're going to have to ask. My hundred and ten percent. Look, before we move on uh, from the whole Mitrovic situation, I just want to say this, Alex. We were told in our one soccer editorial call to avoid Mitrovic because that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let me tell you. Let me tell you. Family does not contribute to your son's future. And yes, I know I've been receiving some DMs from a lot of you guys, and again, appreciate the support as always. Yes, I have been discussing with Mitrovic's father because what I've been told is the person that is handling all of this, uh, first and foremost, and that is his uh, agency, uh, who is taking these calls, taking in these uh, offers, and not the dad who is claiming that he is the one calling uh, the shots. Um, so I just want to say that. But nonetheless, let's move on to more questions about the squad. And that is from North Fan Steve. Two Canon T roster questions. Why was Derek Cornelius 
not called, and what's going on with no call-ups for Theo uh, Corbinu? Um, if I mean, Cornelius and, and Corbinu, the situation doesn't really change. Uh, Cornelius, it's just unfortunate that he's behind Kennedy and Miller right now. If Herdman earmarked one of those two as a Vittoria replacement, and AGR, I know you've pointed out that Miller really should end oh, up transitioning man. into the center of a back three. I wish Cornelius was a right center. Because yeah, we, we all do it right now with Victoria Henry. There's a guy named Joel Waterman, though, by the way. Just yes, saying. who continues to get overlooked. Uh, that's another topic. But th- that's the situation with Cornelius. Um, for Corbinu, it's the same situation as it has been for the past few months. Just has room for growth. He's behind a few guys on the current roster. Plus, he didn't have the best ending to the season with MK Dons. And Canada sometimes don't play without and out wingers. So if you're not in sensational form and there are guys ahead of you and you're still as young as Corbinu is, people do forget that there's really no impetus to call him up like right away. Yeah. I think Cornelius was straightforward. I think what we kind of saw with the lack of Waterman and no Cornelius, I think Canada, they realize that for a 26 or 23 man squad, whatever it ends up being, you're going to have to have a set center back group. It's going to be a bit smaller. You're going to need a little more, you know, if you're going to, want to bring in all the wing backs, all the midfielders, all the forwards they have, they're going to have to sacrifice somewhere on their roster. I think with how tournament football goes, I think they're going to see the center back place as a, you know, as a sacrifice. I think it's going to be the group of five of Johnston, uh, Henry, Vittoria, Miller, and, and, and Kennedy, unless one of them gets injured, then you have Cornelius as the next guy up as the left footer. You have Joel Waterman as the next guy up as the right footer. And that's I think that's that's reasonable given tournament soccer. I think it's just really unfortunate for Cornelius and Waterman because I think they could play a big role, you know, in this cycle, especially given their their form as of late and how they've been playing. But I think what this latest squad gives it kind of gives us a hint of Herdman's plans in terms of his World Cup squad, at least in terms of defenders, and that he he called in. I think at least for me, he had nine forwards in and five center backs. It gives you an idea that he really wants to start looking at forwards. Like why? That's why Charles Andreas Brim was called in. You know, you Luca Colio show, etc. Et he's looking at all all the forwards. He's kind of got a center back group figured out, his goalkeeper group figured out. Midfielders, sort of. It is a bit surprising to see only really called in five midfielders. I would have thought, you know, you bring in a bit of a heavier midfield squad, but I think uh, the otherwise the center back situation is kind of a reflective of what what it'll be at later this year, barring any surprises. I mean, if you look at the squad more kind of in depth, uh, Cornelius is only part of five players uh, from the Panama match. Uh, you have Christian Gutierrez, who was always a depth asset. Uh, you have Ishmael Kone, who just debuted. Uh, Liam Fraser, for me, that's an interesting one. I think he's in Toronto in the summer. Um, might 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 be flying back for preseason in Belgium. Yeah. And you have Liam Miller, who um, who just had a surgery. So there is not really much margin for error. I mean, that's that's pretty much the team Miller. I think could have gone in if it wasn't for for the surgery. But other than that, I mean, that's that's pretty much the team, yeah. the, the the cream of the crop, guys. There's not really much. Um, but I mean, you, you, I mean, you did interview him, Alex, and I think Waterman was extremely close, wasn't he? Well, he 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 was on the long list that we kind of spoke of of Mitrovic. So he said that he was kind of on the the cusp, I, I guess. And I suppose that if there's any injury call ups, given his proximity to Vancouver from Montreal, I'm sure he'll be the first guy on the plane ahead of Cornelius, just because unless Cornelius is in Canada for his off season, which is, is the case, um, I think yeah, he's really really was on the cusp. Are you on five? Uh, why wasn't Jefferson called in? 
with the season he had with Sheffield United, making many appearances in the English Championship as well as playoff matches against Larea's team. Uh, do you think if he scores a few goals for Sheffield United next season, he will be in the plans for Qatar? I don't. Um, and it kind of speaks to the rest of the question. This is a Mitrovic situation in that I don't think he has interest in committing yet. Plus, he was used sparingly at Sheffield United. And while you can see the areas he's grown in, like his close control, composure on the ball, distribution, his uh, fearlessness to dribble into the box and shoot, knowing when to pick his spots and take quality shots, he's still not very dominant in the air. And he's far down the pecking order of strikers right now. Not to mention the Euro U19s start in a couple of weeks, and I'm sure he'll represent England, seeing as how he did get call-ups and played during the qualifiers. Yeah, I just think for Jebison, he's not quite ready for me. I think just you look at the striker options. You got Jonathan David, that's a lock. You got Kyle Aaron, that's a lock. You got EK Ugo is a lock now. Lucas Cavallini's been playing just absurd for Vancouver. He's you know, considering his status on the squad already, he's a lock. You kind of run out of room for for a young striker who's not really getting many minutes, many goals. Like if you're going to break into that group now, you have to do what like Ugbo did, whereas like you committed now and then he started bagging goals in a top five league or something like of, of that like to, to break into that group. And then Jebison is in the, you know, championship, great second tier league. Don't get me wrong, but he's not getting those minutes yet. And the, the potential's there. We saw it on his stint with EFL League One. It will it forever will baffle me why they called him up out of there just to have him on the bench. I know they got him playing up again in their the Sheffield Youth Academy. I don't know why they just that's two years in a row where they just put him out on loan and called him back. And while it worked, it worked in the first year. Just like let let your kid play on on loan unless it's like Corbinell where you don't like the situation and you, you rejiggle the, the 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 situation. But for me, for Jebison, as much as I like his potential and I'd love to see him in a 2026 squad until he starts bagging goals. And if, if anything, just start playing and doing number nine things and getting the consistency and understanding the minute load and the reps and et cetera. He'll, he'll be a ways off just because of how the striker position is, yeah. is, is grown. And we're forgetting Iowa who's, you know, getting his reps in regularly and starting to find goals and other strikers as well. It's it, Jebison's going to need to, it's going to be an uphill battle for him. Say. And he's still 18 guys. Like, like we do forget no that. rush. He's zero rush years old and like this was his first full run in a professional setting of his career so there's still a lot of growth left to go and there's a lot of potential there but there's really no rush in terms of calling him up for this world cup squad you can always bring him in in the next cycle because there are nations league games coming in march so maybe that that could be the time if he is playing regularly and you want to have an eye towards the future well, well, here's the thing, though, right? I mean, my countryman, Ben Brereton, he played for England's youth national teams. When you play for England's youth national teams, your stock continues to, you know, go up the more matches you go because it's one of the primary uh, youth national team setups in the world. And Alex, you bring up a good point. You compare both Ugbo and um, Jebison. Uh, Ugbo was around the same age as well as Jebison when he made his professional debut. It didn't work out for Ugbo in England uh, in the championship, uh, in League One and whatnot, but... In the end, I mean, he's 18, so Ugo is much more polished, clearly. I mean, that's why he's playing in Liga. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, two, three, four, five, even five years, you know, 2022, uh, at the age of 22 or 23, we could see a completely different player Correct. Uh, than the one that we see right now because Ugo is a player that fell out of the sky that we didn't even know we had. 
Uh, and Jebison, I think the, the big thing with Jebison, and, and this is why we keep uh, getting bring, brought up, is that we know he's eligible to play for Canada. We know that he played his youth soccer here, and we know he can represent Canada, and that's why it keeps being brought up constantly every single um, window, every single camp. But the, the reality is, it's just he, he, from what I can probably guess, uh, is that they're trying to, you know, boast his stock um, with the youth national team of England, uh, which, by the way, isn't a bad decision. But in the end, I do believe he will be ending up choosing Canada. Well, he also got to play for youth national team with England, we have to remember. Like, it wasn't like he had much of a choice to play for a Canadian youth national team at the time anyway. So that is also worth considering in the, the case of him. Liam Miller did have the chance to play with England's youth national team. He rejected and waited a whole year for Canada to have a camp, uh, you know, of them. But, but again, I do agree with you. I mean, if the, pers- if the opportunity is presented to yourself, why wouldn't you take it? Now on to who is in the squad. As we discussed, the newbies varying various degrees in Raheem Edwards, uh, Brim, and Kolyosho. Your thoughts on those three getting their opportunities. Well, um, Edwards was a no-brainer, plus it enables you to potentially keep Davies further forward if you so choose. Edwards is one of the top ball progressors in MLS this season. He plays as an auxiliary winger a la Davies as well with the Galaxy, so he's the perfect replacement for him at wingback and at Akubi as well if you so choose. Brim has become a far more constant threat in the final third this season, as evidenced by his 0.3 expected goals per 90, 2.55 shots, 0.1 expected assists. With Eindhoven this season, he is no longer just dribbling aimlessly and getting easily shoved off the ball like in previous stints at Mouscrawl and with the under-23s. Um, so that's clearly an encouraging sign of progress for him and he can play as a winger 10 or 9 if you want him to so he fills several areas positionally which is always a positive and then Cole Yosho, he's as we've discussed earlier in the show a player with immense potential as we can obviously see and he's pretty advanced for his age in terms of his composure on the dribble his strength his pace the willingness to track back which you cannot understate enough because that is something that a lot of young attackers do struggle with is having that responsibility defensively, and Kolyosho has it, plus he is willing to press opposing players, which can clearly entice him to John Herdman. Yeah, well, I think with Raheem Edwards, also it helped Christian Gutierrez, unfortunately, necessarily. He's, he's been in a, a bit of an inconsistent run lately for the Whitecaps. It made sense. Like, Edwards' underlying numbers are fantastic. His defensive numbers were surprising as well. I thought... I, you know, I, was, I didn't expect him to have decent defensive numbers as well. Uh, he's, he's just fit well in that LA Galaxy system. He's versatile. It's a John Herdman player. And I think that's another thing with Brim. He's versatile. That's what I've liked most about this move to, 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 the, to the Netherlands with FC Eindhoven. He was always kind of felt like a, you know, a bit of a one-dimensional forward winger. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that he was able to go and play on the wing and be an inside forward threat and score nine goals or 10 goals, I guess it was uh, in the second division. And like you mentioned, have 0.3 XG per 90, which for a wide player is, is, is phenomenal and just be so consistent and, you know, getting assists and driving forward and, and, and progressing the ball. That sort of versatility is huge because he can play up front. He can be a number nine. He can play, you know, in these different roles. And again, that's a John Herdman sort of player. And you look at someone versus Theo Corbinow, who obviously we, you know, like a lot long term, 
Brim is kind of doing the things that we want Corbin now to do. We want that final product. You want that, you know, delivering the final third, that consistency, that threat. Whereas, you know, Brim found it this year in terms of his consistency. And I think that because of that, it made him an easy a selection. And then in terms of Cole Yosho, I mean, it's, he's an exciting player long-term. I, you know, you look at the, the, some of the film that, that Peter shared the other day, just the way he drives at guys and, and wants to take on guys. That, that desire you can't teach. So it's just from there, figuring out the end product, figuring out how to, to make things happen in the box. But I do like his potential as like a speedy dual threat winger, hopefully one that it, it looks for him. He looked more on the, uh, the creative side than say a goal scorer. But if you can figure out that sort of dual threat, it, it's going to be super fun to watch. It would have been uh, very surprising not to see Raheem Edwards in this call-up because um, he is on pace to be an MLS All-Star this year. And look, I mean, Herman has been very adamant about calling up guys uh, that are on, that are on form. Uh, so you know, if he didn't call up Edwards, Edwards, then he'd be he wouldn't be listening to his own advice. Final question is from Nick Spirits: uh, Why do we have the Nations League if we have the Gold Cup? Why not another event like an invitational tournament between the top four sides of CONCACAF and top four Comable? No one wants to watch Curacao and Haiti and other lesser teams. This is to keep the teams informed, the ones that have nothing to play for, their World Cup qualification dream is over. And uh, on the other second part of the question, there is a chance that the Copa America, you know, is played with uh, CONCACAF teams. So I think oh, I would, will. kind of like the Centenario, so it would be amazing. Yeah. Canada part of that term. Yeah, it would. And even to add to the Nations League point, if CONCACAF can get an opportunity to have another potential U.S.-Mexico game on home soil, they're going to take it. So that's an added benefit for that. It's just bad timing. That's really all it is. Because if FIFA hadn't given Qatar the World Cup, we'd have the Summer World Cup as we come to expect every four years. We'd actually be gearing up for that World Cup right now. And I'm, it's still weird to me that we're not getting a World Cup in a couple of weeks, but that's another topic. And then you would have the Nations League in the fall. And then you would start the new cycle from there. So that's really what this is. Now, yes, it might not be appealing for Canadian fans or American fans, Mexico fans to be facing Honduras, Curacao, whoever, but it does help the rest of the Federation or the rest of the Confederation so you, you do have to look at the bigger picture here. But yes, I, I do see the point in that it's probably not appealing, but there's something else at play here. It wasn't too long ago that Canada was in the exact same position, you know, not playing a, an entire game in, I think it was 14 or 16 months. Um, exactly. That's exactly when we uh, launched the podcast, Peter, when Canada hadn't played Correct. in 16 months. Oh my goodness. If we had launched that podcast in Canada had not been playing for more than a year, then I don't know what the hell we would have talked about. But no, it, it is true. Now that Canada is in a different side, that's exactly why, you know, maybe it looks like, and even I'm saying it's like, why the hell are we playing these countries more? It's a World Cup So year, elitist but of you, Thomas. So elitist of you. 100%. But look, the expectations change. You know, results change. Don't sleep on Curacao, man. Well, we'll see. I mean, AJR has really got the assistant number of, of French Guyana on his WhatsApp, so... He can tell you that more. Yes, I, I can. I can just ring my phone and call French Guyana. Like, like hey guys, Canada calling. Hey, you should have gone this friendly. What's what, what? What? You should get. You should get Canada friendly, man. What are you? What are you doing? Yeah, I'll just let me call French Guyana one sec. See how that goes. Yeah, Maybe I'll convince them to bring some of their. Let's bring some of the sexy uh, French, you know, French Guyana eligible players to try to convince them to. Can we to bring, bring Florida uh, Maluda? That, that that will be fun. <laughs> that is, yeah, or maybe the next Florida Maluda. That is a topic for. 
another day. But but I still cannot believe that that the AGR literally has the the WhatsApp of an assistant coach on French Guiana. Let's talk about about, uh, the Canadian Championship because it was another wild week. The semifinals have been set for June 22nd. Uh, TFC TFC edged Halifax Wonders. Uh, 2-1, thanks to primarily Nova Scotian Jacob Schaffer's efforts. The Wonders were minutes away from forcing penalties, uh, but lost via a late Peter Schala on goal. At Starlight Stadium in Victoria, York United beat Pacific FC 4-3 in a penalty shootout following a 2-2 draw after 90 minutes. CF Montreal cruised past Forge FC 3-0 in a rematch of their semifinal from last year. Finally, the Vancouver Whitecaps got another win over CPL opposition, this time over Cavalry FC at Spruce Meadows in a 5-3 win in a penalty shootout as well. Uh, correct. That sets up York versus Vancouver in the first leg at BC Place and Montreal facing Toronto in the Canadian Classic. Uh, both matches will be played on June 22nd. But what stood out to you, uh, AGR? It was quite the, uh, you know, I mean, for, for the most part, it was a, it was a very competitive round. I think Forge Montreal. I think Montreal showed why they were the favorites with a, a commanding result there. But uh, other than that, I think it was a very competitive round. I thought, you know, Halifax did well against TFC to to make it really interesting at the end. I mean, it shows that in the cup set matches, you need to take your chances. I thought uh, Halifax should have maybe buried the the game and made it two one late on instead. The longer you leave Jonathan Azorio, you know, waiting to, to, you know, do something in these sorts of big games, you know, he'll find a way to, to punish them. So I thought that was a, an entertaining game. You looked at the other games, the Whitecaps Cavalry game. That was super fun. I mean, the Whitecaps minutes away from elimination, if not for a late uh, goal to, to bring it to penalties. So two sets of penalties. And then, of course, that Pacific York game, which I got to attend at Starlight Bonkers. I mean, wild goals, a 96 minute equalizer, penalty shootout. Uh, it had it all, but I, I just thought this was such an interesting round because a, a stat I noted when, when doing research is I think there were it was something like three uh, game tying or game lead changing goals in this round came after the 80th minute. And in my research in the past two editions of the competition, there'd been like one of those such goals total. So I just thought that was super fun and showed that there was a lot more drama this round than usual in terms of late goals. Uh, obviously, some golazos, some penalty shootouts, two things we haven't seen much of also in Canadian uh, championships. So I thought it was a fun round. If it felt like a fun round, the numbers do back it up. And uh, now it leads to two very interesting semifinals. Whitecaps at home versus York. Can they continue the run of, of this newfound success against CPL teams and host a final? Or will York continue to be the road underdogs and win on penalties or other form? And then the other game, you got the Canadian Classic. Uh, Montreal, the favorites, but they're on the road to Toronto, struggling with injuries. Can they, you know, first win the 2020 final, as well, I'm sure we'll mention, and then go win, the, you know, make it to the 22 final? Uh, or will they have to suffer another defeat in, to Montreal? I think that would be the third such year in a row because they lost to Montreal in 2019, in 2021. And if they lose now in 2022, that's going to be frustrating. So lots of more tasty matchups to come. Hopefully more late goals, more penalties, more golazos. Yeah, it was it was a you know the the point you mentioned about the penalty shootouts, all the excitement, all the drama and all that. The last time I felt like the tournament had that was before Montreal and Vancouver entered MLS. I know there were far fewer teams involved, 
but that was really the last time it felt that way. And I think the common denominator here is, which I know we're going to get into here. In fact, why don't we? Enter Dave. With the growing popularity of the Can Champ, will we eventually see Canada Soccer open up the competition to the entirety of League One Ontario and PLSQ? I'd even say all of League One Canada, to be honest, because the reason why those previous Canadian Championship additions with Lower League Vancouver and Montreal involved was the fact that it was Lower League. You felt like playing against your Canadian rivals, there was a lot more at stake. It just had that lower league feel and it had a, a sense of, hey, anybody can win this. Adding more of those teams will give you even more of that feel as we're seeing now, even in the current format. Well, it's just like, it, it, I, I understand why that hasn't been the case. You know, it's financial reasons, it's expensive, travel, etc. Of course. But it would make so much sense. And if you can bring in as many semi-pro teams as possible, and even another one, I mean, we have to remember that Canada every year does a professional or a a national wide championships for amateur teams. Why not throw that winner in? If you imagine if you're, I just know from BC, the provincial champions this year, BB5 United, funnily enough, former, uh, former white cap and Canadian international Marcel de Jong played for them uh, a bit this year, as did a former white cap Caleb Clark. So some, some funny, so some, awesome names there they won imagine to say they're the defending uh national champions from 2019 back when they were Surrey united for uh renamed to bb5 after the, the the unfortunate passing of one of their players brandon bassey you know imagine if they win again and then they get a, a chance by some you know draw to host a tfc in surrey athletic park or oh vancouver whitecaps <laughs> like that would be phenomenal like the, that's the sort of more cup games you need because that sort of stuff you just sticks with you like I think of all the 6,000 people who are at Halifax versus Toronto and yeah, their team didn't win or, you know, even, I guess if you want to use a situation where they did the 5,000 fans last year at Pacific for versus white caps, those games stick even with Guelph. you. Like you stick, even you remember. Even, even yeah. Guelph even awesome. like you just remember being at those games. You remember the feeling of hosting a big team and having your city in the spotlight and having all the hoopla and media attention and the cup ties and, it just it's so cool to see those sorts of stories. And I think that's one thing the U.S. has done so well with the Open Cup is just opening up to amateurs and everyone. And you see stories like the North Colorado Hailstorm, a USL League One team that's six months old beating RSL. Like that sort of stuff's awesome and, and that you need more of. So I'd love to see it. For me, that's something if I'm talking about this windfall that Canada will receive and obviously might lose a chunk of with uh, what we talked about at the beginning. But with the money they have, I'd love to see them invest in a Canadian championship because it's a sort of grassroots initiative that would do well for them long term in terms of growing the game. And we're going back to time travel. And I do mean that uh, because a reminder to everyone that the 2020 Canadian championship final is this weekend. If you want to attend the game, we have a link in the podcast description for a discount to the Forge versus TFC game at Tim Warren's Field. We will, of course, be tweeting out uh, the promo code as well uh, throughout the week as that match gets closer. Um, any predictions uh, for the game, guys? Ooh, um, I'm going to go 3-1 for TFC. And for the simple reason that I think they just have the better depth and quality. I suppose they have the more polished squad. I still think Forge at times is still trying to work out, hey, what's our best 11? Where, where do these pieces fit? Things like that. Can we get Taron Campbell fully firing here? Um, little things like that. Not to mention 
the fact that I think TFC will still concede because defensively they've just been so porous. Um, it'll probably be interesting. I feel like it'll be like 2-1 for, for the longest time, but then eventually they're going to get a third goal and, and, and put it away. I, I think for me, I think just given Forge's continuing injury struggles, especially with, uh, you know, um, the, the Montreal game, you saw that with the injuries, et cetera. I don't think they're going to come up flat like that again, so I don't think it's going to be 3-0. I just think with Toronto in this game, uh, I, I suppose Forge will probably take it more seriously uh, than, than, than Toronto, at least on paper. But I'll, I'll say a 2-1 TFC win just in terms of, I think, Forge. They'll, they'll put up a great performance, but Toronto just exit out. They have this sort of aura in the Canadian Championship. So when the trophy's on the line, they seem to, to find the way. Although I do think Forge will, will make a game of it, especially after how they, they went out against Montreal. They will hate having that feeling in their mouth and will want to give a much better account of themselves in this rematch or this different game. Sorry, but big one nonetheless. I think it's fair to say that both teams will still want to add a trophy cabinet. Just add a trophy, trophy cabinet? Let's say a trophy, at least for uh, for them. You know, it's not really, it's, it's a small trophy. You can't cabinet. have a cabinet without a trophy. No, you it's can't. Forge has the first for Forge has a chance to be the first CPL team to win this competition. Uh, so I think it's going to mean a lot more for them. Now this doesn't decide uh, the champions league because obviously that year um, TFC went ahead, but nonetheless, I mean, something has to be said that, you know, Forge was just, you know, tied for seventh place in the CPL, a team that uh, made the past three finals, won two of them and TFC who are still waiting for Insignia, you know, they just beat Chicago Fire and have, you know, hoping to turn the page. So these kind of games, you know, they, they matter. And I feel like if one of those three teams wins a title, um, and, and they will, one of them will win, of course, on, on Saturday. I should be covering that game um, for one soccer social media. But I would say TFC has the upper advantage. Um, but don't sleep on Forge. I do, I do think it's going to be a close one. Uh, TFC, TFC take this to one. And with that, let's head over to the MLS, where all three Canadian teams won this weekend. The stats guy right here, AJR, when was the last time all three teams won? Literally like three, four weeks ago. Yeah, literally. <laughs> like literally happened earlier this season for the first time in like five years or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My goodness, I would say it would have been special if it wasn't for the fact that it happened a month ago. Uh, anyways, Toronto FC came out on top in a thrilling 3-2 victory over Chicago Fire. I was at that game. Excellent. Uh, DeAndre Kerr scored while Alejandro Pacello add another two for TFC. Uh, thoughts on Kerr's development? I mean, playing as part of a midfield trio or diamond, depending on the situation, has helped Kerr a lot in recent weeks. He has good chemistry developing with Jimenez and Aquinola, as you can see on the goal that he scored via that late run towards the box with Jimenez setting him up those long strides and ability to dribble forward help him as an eight or a wide midfielder as well still very raw as you expect from a player who is as inexperienced as he is in the pro game and for him being 19 years old but regular minutes in a consistent role which we've now seen for a few weeks is going to help him immensely andrew thompson uh, would this be a smart move for tfc to benefit from a jonathan osorio transfer his value couldn't be higher, and it's unlikely that they need him for a playoff run this season. Gentlemen, I think this one's off the cards, considering how he had the chance to go to Europe a couple of years ago and, and didn't do so. Look, it's never too late. He's still 29, about to turn 30, I believe. 
Um, if the right offer comes in and Osorio is willing to make the move, why not? They have a lot of midfielders and this is what clubs in this section of the food chain do. They sell, make a profit, replenish the squad and start over the cycle. Osorio is obviously a very vital player for TFC, but sometimes you have to make those hard choices. And if the offer comes in and Osorio wants to go, you might have to accept it. Yeah, for him personally, I'm not sure if it'll work out now just because with the World Cup coming up so soon, I would have thought maybe you could give it a go at the beginning of the year, kind of like Eustachio, like Larea did to to give it a, you know, get enough time to adjust somewhere. So it, it might be a bit last minute in terms of, of that. But uh, other than that, I can't, you know, if, if he wants to, if it works out, Toronto, from Toronto's perspective, you can cash in on him. Yeah, especially if you risk losing him for 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 nothing. So I suppose, uh, depending on the situation, it would have to depend. CF Montreal was involved in another wild game with FC Cincinnati coming out on top 4-3 at Stade Saputo. Is the lack of aerial ability in Montreal's backline of the team's main Achilles heel now? Yes, as evidenced by the seven goals they've now conceded via set pieces, which is one of the highest totals in the league this year, by the way, because Joel Waterman aside, I don't think there's another center back who can handle aerials very well. They might also need to tweak their zones when marking on set pieces, because if you're conceding that much and even the goals that don't go in, like these are high quality shots are giving up too, then there's something wrong with how you're setting up in these situations. If they even concede half as many goals in those situations, Maybe they're top of the Eastern Conference with those extra points gained, having not allowed as many goals from set pieces. Finally, a Vancouver Whitecaps edged Sporting KC 1-0 for their first points on the road this season. Lucas Kalina kept us his hot form with a Penenka from the penalty spot. Great stuff to see. Uh, we could have Lucas Kalina in the coming weeks. Might be a little tough with uh, Canada duty, but again, it is all about the time. Uh, question from Aiden Stanky. A friend of mine, a buddy of mine from uh, St. Albert, Alberta. Um, five wins, one draw, and one loss for the Whitecaps in their last seven. Question mark, are you hopeful that the Whitecaps can continue this run and somehow get back into the playoff race? Also, how great have the Southsiders been this season? Yeah, the Whitecaps have slowly resuscitated their, their season. It was on life support. They did their first aid. They they they, they did the, the chest palpitations, and the season is back on track. I mean just four points off a playoff spot as of us talking. They have a game in hand against RSL this weekend. A bit of an unfortunate timing with the international break, but hey, should they win that? They're a point off the playoff spot through 14 games. Uh, you know, not yet the halfway point in heading into an international break. You're into the semifinals of the Canadian Championship. Things are looking good for the Whitecaps. I mean, a few weeks ago, they looked, you know, terrible. They were struggling to win games, get any sort of results. They were they weren't playing well. You got all these injuries. And while they still got all these injuries and absences, the fact that they've been playing so well, despite some of the guys they're missing, it's positive to think that they've been in this run of form and you could welcome back a Ryan, a fully fit Ryan Gold. And Kyle Alexandre is finally included in match day squads and is training fully again. And Andreas Kubas is coming after the international break with his paperwork now sorted out. And, you know, the team's really coming to, together in terms of uh, some of the pieces that they have. I think it's an encouraging time to be the Whitecaps because if they can do well in the Canadian 
championship win would uh, you know be the goal and then make the playoffs that's a good season and right now after both of those things looking so unlikely weeks ago it looks very realistic now and i think that's uh that's good news for for vancouver just two games happens over the weekends in the cpl pacific fc uh and valor drew 2-2 while cavalry beat york united thanks to armin peppel's first professional goal uh, again i was at that match looks like peppel's second stint uh, with Cavalry is obviously becoming a more uh, successful one after uh, a stint um, with Getafe's U19 side. Uh, one question is from Conrad Krasert. Uh, I want to know your top three Canfield keepers. Mine goes Carducci, one, Chansopoulos, two, and three, Sura. Ooh, that's a good question. I'd probably go Sura number one, Carducci second, and then third I'm going to go Callum Irving. The first two are the best all-around goalkeepers in the league right now, and I like Irving as a, as a shot stopper, but I think sometimes he struggles a bit on crosses and aerials, maybe just needs a bit more command there. Yeah, for me, I think my top two is Sirwa, Carducci. I like Carducci super solid. Uh, Sirwa, he's just such an impressive commander of the area. Uh, for me, then the toss-up at number three I, I really want to say Callum Irving, but I also think Andreas Weichler this year has been very good for Edmonton and has also yeah. kept them in a lot of games and has been, you know, performing well considering the circumstances. So, I mean, I guess if we're talking long-term, I'd take Irving just because he has more of that profile. It's so early with Weichler. Is this just because he's getting so many shots, he's looking good? Is this I'm just because so you know, he's, he's on a hot run? But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to, if we're talking right now, uh, short term, I'm going, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to throw in Vikla because uh, so some FC Edmonton players for all the talk of the teams, there are some players worthy of, uh, of some praise and Andreas Vikla for me, every time I've watched him, he's stood out in a big way. Listen, man, FC Edmonton are struggling. Alan Koch there is, you know, he has the, the, the white flag halfway pulled up. I mean, they're the youngest team in the CPL by far. They're running on a shoestring budget. Um, I know the exact figure. I'm not going to say it, though, but it is a mission, impossible budget situation. I don't know how you want to word it, but they're literally against everything in the universe. But nonetheless, let's run up the show with the news and notes. Richie Larea uh, has been promoted. Uh, him and Arnold Forrest have been promoted to the Premier League. However, Larea was not uh, on the match day squad. A lot of, lot of talk uh, going on. Uh, Question is from Dito. Uh, now that Forrest are in the Premier League, will a preseason help Steve Cooper understand who Larea is as a player? And worst case, Larea moves out of Forrest after the World Cup during the winter. Or should Larea really move out of Forrest on loan in the summer for the World Cup? Uh, similar question from Jordan SC. Will Larea get loaned out or stay in squad? And Grandpa Riley. Uh, someone else has been asked this by now, but what are Larea's chances of becoming a regular in the Premier League? Uh, big offseason for him coming up. Hopefully the Canada team matchless he'll definitely play will help his chances. Now, here's the thing. For someone who is, hasn't been part of uh, the, the, the squad as frequently as he has been in the championship, it would be absurd to think that he's going to be part of the Premier League. But there is also a chance that the player who is playing uh, ahead of him, uh, that is uh, Spence, uh, will be sold. So things can change, right? Also, Max Lowe's on loan from Sheffield United. Now, they it looks like they're going to work out a deal to retain him. But if both Spence and Lowe leave, then that opens up the door completely. Even if one of them leaves, I still think he has a decent shot of at least sticking around in the squad, just out of necessity, because maybe they don't get the replacement they have earmarked for one of those guys. 
Um, but it really does depend on that. Um, Spence does have interest from United, Spurs, and previously Bayern, but having signed Masrawi, who Canada could end up facing with Morocco at the World Cup, uh, there's no need for Spence now from a Bayern perspective. Middlesbrough own his rights, but they'll certainly sell him to someone, whether that's Forrest or another Premier League team. Um, but Lorea has the advantage of being there for four months now, playing a few times, earning Cooper's respect and trust, and knowing the system. Plus, if there's anyone currently in that squad who is a Spence clone, it's Lorea. That's why it's such a massive preseason for him, because if he hits the ground running and Forrest can't get any replacements in by early August, then he could be in line for some games. Otherwise, a loan to a solid championship club could be in the works, and that's also totally fine. I think for Larea, I just hope, yeah, I hope he gets a shot with Forrest. I mean, it helps. He's been there for months. If Steve Cooper's around, he's familiar with the system. One nice thing is that Larea, despite his lack of minutes, it seems like he's well invested, you know, invested in the squad. The players like him. You know, he seems to have developed a good relationship with some of them. He seems to, you know, enjoying his time there. Uh, so I think that will, will help him. And, you know, he knowing Richie Larea, you know when he's going to get an opportunity, he's going to take it. So hopefully he gets a chance, goes to preseason, gets a crack to try and make their Premier League roster. And if not, at least, you know, you, you got to taste him in the championship. A smart team there uh, would, would surely take a look at him, maybe one looking for promotion hopes, loan him out. It's not a bad thing to have him play 30, 40 games in the championship and get a good run there and then see what happens with, with Forrest. So I think either way, I'm encouraged with what's going to happen with Larea. I mean, I'd love to see him play in the Premier League, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing to end up in the championship of uh, some form or another. He needs to be playing games ahead of Qatar. I think that's the main goal. I think seeing sign of kind of some of the discussion online, uh, this camp, it kind of feels like Larea has fallen off in the eyes of many, which is like fair. He hasn't played much, but I think it's important to remember how key he was to Canada and why he started most big games for Canada, no matter what state he was in. So from his perspective, he'll just need to get minutes to kind of build up that 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 again before, you know, some other players start uh, passing him. Breaking news, quite literally just minutes ago, Canada Soccer has announced uh, through social media that Jonathan Osorio will miss the upcoming men's national team cap through injury. Uh, now, that is a big loss considering uh, the name here. Uh, but who should replace Osorio in the match day squad? Two names come to mind. Uh, that is, of course, uh, Liam Fraser uh, and Ishmael Kone. I would say it's Kone just because Osorio and Fraser are different players. And Fraser hasn't played in a, more than a month now. So that would probably be the guy to go to. But he hasn't played as much recently since Piet returned to full fitness. And Sean Nier has been in, in incredible form. Maybe he has an outside shot. Yeah, I'd have to echo that. I think Kone makes the most sense. They only have four natural midfielders in their squad as of right now. Uh, so unless they want to play someone out of position, I mean, hey, I've always said long-term Alfonso Davies is a number eight, and I think Alistair Johnson right now could do a job as a number eight, but this close to a World Cup, no need to experiment. Ismail Kone would make a lot of sense for a replacement. Steven Vittorias Morens uh, has been relegated after falling 2-1 on aggregate to Chavez, Mustakio's former side. Uh, Vittoria's deal expires on June 30th. Uh, so what is his uh, next move? It's hard to say. MLS, perhaps. Some suggested TFC, and I don't hate that. Although, in a back four, with their lack of structure at times and defensive transitions, I have my doubts that he'll be effective. 
CF Montreal was thrown out there, maybe as a Camacho replacement, he is better, but they still have quite a a logjam at center back. There's also every chance he signs for a Primera Liga club because he's a known commodity there. He's experienced, speaks the language, and can do a job for most clubs in that league. Morarense was a perennial upper mid-table team up until this season, and he was basically an everyday starter for them during those seasons. I know that he is now 35. He has some injury history. Um, but regardless, you can't tell me that he wouldn't be a valuable addition, even as a rotation option for a team in a similar position in the Premier League. Yeah. Well, with Vittoria for me, I think he just needs minutes. Like his last season was, was rough in terms of minutes, consistency, yellow cards, Maybe the you do wonder if maybe the Portuguese league was just a bit too speedy for him in terms of the cards. He certainly had his moments at the Portuguese level, so I'm not saying it's too late yet. I just wonder uh, if it might be, given his age, where he's at his career, might be wise to, to make a move to MLS. And I mean, if there's a right club there, I mean, Montreal is the natural fit. They might not have the space. Toronto needs bodies could turn them into a back three. I mean, I'd love to see like a back three of Victoria McNaughton and, you know, one of the other center backs they have, if not the Whitecaps. He has played in the Philadelphia Union before, so he has familiarity also in the States. Maybe he picked up a green card there because you know how it is with the the U.S. Or I don't know how, maybe it'll it'll have expired by uh, by then. But uh, anyways, in terms of him, I think, yeah, I think MLS might be uh, the the wise move for for him. And I think it'd be a smart coup for, for a team that's in MLS who needs a bit of defensive help. I can't be asking the figures that he was once making with Philadelphia Union, though. I mean, nonetheless, he is on his way to uh, North America for the camp. I was talking to him. He's, he's in traveling. So last week, St. Johnston salvaged our status in the Scottish Premiership. Uh, so that means that David Witherspoon and Theo Bear are staying in the top flight. That is great to see. Great news uh, for Canadian soccer. We also forgot to mention that Charles Andreas Brim's FC Eindhoven lost in the end of these promotional playoffs to Arrow Den Haag. 4-2 on aggregate. Uh, so if Brim is to play in the Eredivisie next year, it is going to be with another side. Uh, Canadian forward Jason Russell Rose signed a short-term loan agreement with Columbus Crew after scoring six goals in as many as in as, in as many games for Crew Two, uh, which has him tied atop the MLS Next Pro Golden Boot race. Uh, second last question from a listener. Third last question of the show. Um, from Henry Thomas, uh, which MLS pro players do you feel can make the Canada U20 team for the CONCACAF championship in June? Well, I won't include the Canadian-based teams because I feel like there are literally dozens who are going to be in the conversation, so I'll focus on the U.S. teams. The two that come to mind were already in the April camp. That's Matteo Bunbury for sure, for the reasons I mentioned on previous shows, and that the man is a live wire. He's incredibly young, and he's developing an eye for goal. He just has to add a little more selflessness into his game, and then I think he could really explode. And then Tyler Crawford's the other one. He got a call up in the last window, filled in at fullback and winger in April. I reckon he'll be going to the CONCACAF U-20s because of how often he played in both Costa Rica games. So those would be the two that I would say would end up getting into the final under-20 squad that are in MLS Next Pro clubs in the U.S. See, Montreal officially changed their logo on Friday, along with a more traditional look from their Montreal Impact days. Uh, do you like the changes? I think it's much needed. I think it's not much to be said. I think there was why the 
rebrand of the rebrand of the rebrand was uh, was done again. Um, again, we can speak about the the name and why they got rid of it. And, you know, I would have loved to keep the Montreal Impact name around, but if no matter what you do, given Montreal's rich history, like it's not like they're a team that needed to forget their history. You can be a modern look and still pay respect and homage to the the 20, 30 years of soccer that came before them. And I think with this new badge, it brings back the blue and back, black, the frill, the list, the, you know, the sort of stuff that made the Montreal impact, the Montreal impact. It's a good compromise to, to the name change and the modernization. And I think it opens the door for some nice kits. It will really, it, the fan base seemed to, to really be happy with the decision. So uh, they, they ticked a lot of boxes. They maybe should have ticked the first time around. They got to listen to their supporters, man. They're the ones that are buying tickets, jerseys, uh, you name it. Uh, if you're not listening to your supporters, uh, then there are bigger issues at large. Uh, final question of the longest Northern football podcast episode ever. Uh, that question goes to wsoccer.ca. Could you speak on the Canadian women's players who were promoted to the top flight in France this season, specifically La Montagne and Araujo? Well, La Montagne and Araujo have been key players for their respective clubs. By all accounts, based on the surface level data, they should be fairly regular contributors in the top flight next season. Hopefully that's the case. Um, Araujo is probably the more exciting of the two, just given that she is a bit younger. Um, she's been on fire for La Havre this season. Um, so hopefully that ends up translating in the top flight. It should be interesting to, to note their progress in what is one of the top women's leagues in the world. And that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the longest episode to date of the Northern Football Podcast. For Thomas Neff and Alexander Gongay-Ruzik, I am Peter Galindo. We will see you at the same time, same place next week. Up the NFP. Up the NFP.